Introduction and Preface to The House of the Seven Gables This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne Introductory Note in September of the year during the February of which Hawthorne had completed the Scarlet Letter, he began The House of the Seven Gables. Meanwhile, he had removed from Salem to Lenox in Berkshire County, Massachusetts, where he occupied with his family a small red wooden house, still standing at the date of this edition, near the Stockbridge Bowl. "'I shan't have the new story ready by November,' he explained to his publisher on the 1st of October, for I am never good for anything in the literary way till after the first autumnal frost, which has somewhat such an effect on my imagination that it does on the foliage here about me, multiplying and brightening its hues. But by vigorous application he was able to complete the new work about the middle of the January following. Since research has disclosed the manner in which the romance is interwoven with incidents from the history of the Hawthorne family, the House of the Seven Gables has acquired an interest apart from that by which it first appealed to the public. John Hawthorne, spelled H-A-T-H-O-R-N-E, as the name was then spelled, the great-grandfather of Nathaniel Hawthorne, was a magistrate at Salem in the latter part of the seventeenth century, and officiated at the famous trials for witchcraft held there. It is of record that he used peculiar severity towards a certain woman who was among the accused, and the husband of this woman prophesied that God would take revenge upon his wife's persecutors. This circumstance doubtless furnished a hint for that piece of tradition in the book, which represents a pinchon of a former generation as having persecuted one Maul, who declared that God would give his enemy, quote, blood to drink, end quote. It became a conviction with the Hawthorne family that a curse had been pronounced upon its members, which continued in force in the time of the romancer, a conviction perhaps derived from the recorded prophecy of the injured woman's husband just mentioned, and, here again, we have a correspondence with Maul's malediction in the story. Furthermore, there occurs in the American Notebooks, August 27, 1837, a reminiscence of the author's family, to the following effect. Philip English, a character well known in early Salem annals, was among those who suffered from John Hawthorne's magisterial harshness, and he maintained in consequence a lasting feud with the old Puritan official. But at his death English left daughters, one of whom was said to have married the son of Justice John Hawthorne, whom English had declared he would never forgive. It is scarcely necessary to point out how clearly this foreshadows the final union of those hereditary foes, the Pinchons and Malls, through the marriage of Phoebe and Holgrave. The romance, however, describes the Malls as possessing some of the traits known to have been characteristic of the Hawthorns. For example, quote, So long as any of the race were to be found, they had been marked out from other men, not strikingly, nor as with a sharp line, but with an effect that was felt rather than spoken of. 
by an hereditary characteristic of reserve. End quote. Thus, while the general suggestion of the Hawthorne line and its fortunes was followed in the romance, the Pinchons taking the place of the author's family, certain distinguishing marks of the Hawthorns were assigned to the imaginary mall posterity. There are one or two other points which indicate Hawthorne's method of basing his compositions. The result, in the main of pure invention, on the solid ground of particular facts. Allusion is made, in the first chapter of the Seven Gables, to a grant of lands in Waldo County, Maine, owned by the Pinchon family. In the American Notebooks, there is an entry, dated August 12, 1837, which speaks of the revolutionary general, Knox, and his land grant in Waldo County, by virtue of which the owner had hoped to establish an estate on the English plan, with a tenantry to make it profitable for him. An incident of much greater importance in the story is the supposed murder of one of the Pinchons by his nephew, to whom we are introduced as Clifford Pinchon. In all probability, Hawthorne connected with this, in his mind, the murder of Mr. White, a wealthy gentleman of Salem, killed by a man whom his nephew had hired. This took place a few years after Hawthorne's graduation from college, and was one of the celebrated cases of the day, Daniel Webster taking part prominently in the trial. But it should be observed here that such resemblances as these between sundry elements in the work of Hawthorne's fancy, and details of reality, are only fragmentary, and are rearranged to suit the author's purposes. In the same way he has made his description of Hepzibah Pinchon's seven-gabled mansion conform so nearly to several old dwellings, formerly or still extant in Salem, that strenuous efforts have been made to fix upon some one of them as the veritable edifice of the romance. A paragraph in the opening chapter has perhaps assisted this delusion that there must have been a single original House of the Seven Gables, framed by flesh-and-blood carpenters, for it runs thus, quote, Familiar as it stands in the writer's recollection, for it has been an object of curiosity with him from boyhood, both as a specimen of the best and stateliest architecture of a long-past epoch, and as the scene of events more full of interest perhaps than those of a grey feudal castle, familiar as it stands in its rusty old age, it is therefore only the more difficult to imagine the bright novelty with which it first caught the sunshine. Hundreds of pilgrims annually visit a house in Salem, belonging to one branch of the Ingersoll family of that place, which is stoutly maintained to have been the model for Hawthorne's visionary dwelling. Others have supposed that the now-vanished house of the identical Philip English, whose blood, as we have already noticed, became mingled with that of the Hawthorns, supplied the pattern, and still a third building, known as the Kerwin Mansion, has been declared the only genuine establishment. Notwithstanding persistent popular belief, the authenticity of all these must positively be denied, although it is possible that isolated reminiscences of all three may have blended with the ideal image in the mind of Hawthorne. He, it will be seen, remarks in the preface, alluding to himself in the third person, that he trusts not to be condemned for laying out a street that infringes upon nobody's private rights, 
and building a house of materials long in use for constructing castles in the air. More than this, he stated to persons still living that the house of the romance was not copied from any actual edifice, but was simply a general reproduction of a style of architecture belonging to colonial days, examples of which survived into the period of his youth, but have since been radically modified or destroyed. Here, as elsewhere, he exercised the liberty of a creative mind to heighten the probability of his pictures, without confining himself to a literal description of something he had seen. While Hawthorne remained at Lennox, and during the composition of this romance, various other literary personages settled or stayed for a time in the vicinity, among them Herman Melville, whose intercourse Hawthorne greatly enjoyed, Henry James, Sr., Dr. Holmes, J. T. Headley, James Russell Lowell, Edwin P. Whipple, Frederica Bremer, and J. T. Fields, so that there was no lack of intellectual society in the midst of the beautiful and inspiring mountain scenery of the place. In the afternoons, nowadays, he records, shortly before beginning the work, this valley in which I dwell seems like a vast basin filled with golden sunshine, as with wine. And, happy in the companionship of his wife and their three children, he led a simple, refined, idyllic life, despite the restrictions of a scanty and uncertain income. A letter written by Mrs. Hawthorne at this time, to a member of her family, gives incidentally a glimpse of the scene which may properly find a place here. She says, I delight to think that you also can look forth, as I do now, upon a broad valley and a fine amphitheatre of hills, and are about to watch the stately ceremony of the sunset from your piazza. But you have not this lovely lake, nor, I suppose, the delicate purple mist which folds these slumbering mountains in airy vales. Mr. Hawthorne has been lying down in the sunshine, slightly flickered with the shadows of a tree, and Una and Julian have been making him look like the mighty pan, by covering his chin and breast with long grass-blades, that looked like a verdant and venerable beard. The pleasantness and peace of his surroundings, and of his modest home in Lennox, may be taken into account as harmonizing with the mellow serenity of the romance then produced. Of the work, when it appeared in the early spring of 1851, he wrote to Horatio Bridge these words, now published for the first time. Quote, the House of the Seven Gables, in my opinion, is better than the Scarlet Letter, but I should not wonder if I had refined upon the principal character a little too much for popular appreciation, nor if the romance of the book should be somewhat at odds with the humble and familiar scenery in which I invest it. But I feel that portions of it are as good as anything I can hope to write, and the publisher speaks encouragingly of its success. End quote. From England, especially, came many warm expressions of praise, a fact which Mrs. Hawthorne, in a private letter, commented on as the fulfilment of a possibility which Hawthorne, writing in boyhood to his mother, had looked forward to. He had asked her if she would not like him to become an author, and have his books read in England. This is the end of the introductory note, and it's signed G. P. L. Preface. 
When a writer calls his work a romance, it need hardly be observed that he wishes to claim a certain latitude, both as to its fashion and material, which he would not have felt himself entitled to assume had he professed to be writing a novel. The latter form of composition is presumed to aim at a very minute fidelity, not merely to the possible, but to the probable and ordinary course of man's experience. The former, while, as a work of art, it must rigidly subject itself to laws, and while it sins unpardonably so far as it may swerve aside from the truth of the human heart, has fairly a right to present that truth under circumstances, to a great extent, of the writer's own choosing or creation. If he think fit, also, he may so manage his atmospherical medium as to bring out or mellow the lights, and deepen and enrich the shadows of the picture. He will be wise, no doubt, to make a very moderate use of the privileges here stated, and, especially, to mingle the marvellous rather as a slight, delicate, and evanescent flavour than as any portion of the actual substance of the dish offered to the public. He can hardly be said, however, to commit a literary crime, even if he disregard this caution. In the present work, the author has proposed to himself, but with what success, fortunately, it is not for him to judge, to keep undeviatingly within his immunities. The point of view in which this tale comes under the romantic definition lies in the attempt to connect a bygone time with the very present that is flitting away from us. It is a legend prolonging itself, from an epoch now grey in the distance, down into our own broad daylight, and bringing along with it some of its legendary mist, which the reader, according to his pleasure, may either disregard or allow it to float almost imperceptibly about the characters and events for the sake of a picturesque effect. The narrative, it may be, is woven of so humble a texture as to require this advantage, and, at the same time, to render it the more difficult of attainment. Many writers lay very great stress upon some definite moral purpose, at which they profess to aim their works. Not to be deficient in this particular, the author has provided himself with a moral, the truth, namely, that the wrongdoing of one generation lives into the successive ones, and, divesting itself of every temporary advantage, becomes a pure and uncontrollable mischief, and he would feel it a singular gratification if this romance might effectually convince mankind, or indeed any one man, of the folly of tumbling down an avalanche of ill-gotten gold or real estate on the heads of an unfortunate posterity, thereby to maim and crush them until the accumulated mass shall be scattered abroad in its original atoms. In good faith, however, he is not sufficiently imaginative to flatter himself with the slightest hope of this kind. When romances do really teach anything, or produce any effective operation, it is usually through a far more subtle process than the ostensible one. The author has considered it hardly worth his while, therefore, relentlessly to impale the story with its moral as with an iron rod, or, rather, as by sticking a pin through a butterfly, thus at once depriving it of life and causing it to stiffen in an ungainly and unnatural attitude. A high truth, indeed, fairly, finely, 
and skillfully wrought out, brightening at every step, and crowning the final development of a work of fiction, may add an artistic glory, but is never any truer, and seldom any more evident, at the last page than at the first. The reader may perhaps choose to assign an actual locality to the imaginary events of this narrative. If permitted by the historical connection, which, though slight, was essential to his plan, the author would very willingly have avoided anything of this nature. Not to speak of other objections, it exposes the romance to an inflexible and exceedingly dangerous species of criticism, by bringing his fancy pictures almost into positive contact with the realities of the moment. It has been no part of his object, however, to describe local manners, nor in any way to meddle with the characteristics of a community for whom he cherishes a proper respect and a natural regard. He trusts not to be considered as unpardonably offending by laying out a street that infringes upon nobody's private rights, and appropriating a lot of land which had no visible owner, and building a house of materials long in use for constructing castles in the air. The personages of the tale, though they give themselves out to be of ancient stability and considerable prominence, are really of the author's own making, or at all events, of his own mixing. Their virtues can shed no luster, nor their defects redound, in the remotest degree, to the discredit of the venerable town of which they profess to be inhabitants. He would be glad, therefore, if, especially in the quarter to which he alludes, the book may be read strictly as a romance, having a great deal more to do with the clouds overhead than with any portion of the actual soil of the county of Essex. Written in Lennox, January 27, 1851, by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This is the end of the introductory note and the preface. The next file will begin the actual story.